good to be with you this morning. My name's John Marriott, and uh, great to see so many here. Great to see so many familiar faces. Some former um, students at Biola are here, so it's very nice to uh, have you in the audience out there today, too. And um, we are continuing on. We are sort of continuing on, uh, or in another way, we're also introducing the topic for today, which Robert began last week, and that is following the master... What is he doing and how do we get in on it? And if you remember last week, Robert talked about Peter, talked about John, it was the end of the gospel, and, and, and about how the story continued on, even though the Lord himself was no longer with his disciples. So that's what we're going to be picking up today, starting the, the series on that. Now, it seems like a lifetime ago, uh, I was uh, shuffled into the gymnasium with the rest of my third grade classmates and uh, sort of forced to watch a movie that for whatever reason our teachers thought was really important for us to see. And it was a story about a boy named Bastian who had come across this really magical book and uh, it was about a boy named Atreyu and in the, the story Atreyu was uh, on a journey to try and save the land of Fantasia from the all-encompassing nothing. Does anybody know what the name of that story and the name of that movie is? What? Yeah, the never-ending story, right? It's the never-ending story. And although you probably can't remember much about the story, the theme song probably does still stick in your head because it actually made it to the top six on the American adult contemporary uh, charts. And so uh, the, the never-ending story was this story about this boy who went on this journey and another boy who was reading about it. And the book, of course... Was, was fiction, and uh, even though it was a, a fairly popular movie at the time, it did get a little bit of ridicule because the, the, the movie was entitled The Never-Ending Story, but it only actually lasted for 94 minutes. And so people pointed out the contradiction there inherent in the title. I also like to point out that it's also similar, an analogy of this would be when we sing indescribable, and then we use like 12 different adjectives to actually describe God throughout the entire song. So that's sort of the criticism of the never-ending story. It has this title, and the title really isn't, isn't what it, uh, it isn't, doesn't line up with the actual story itself. In fact, The Simpsons did an episode once where um, they had one of the characters going to sue the producers of the movie for false advertising because it wasn't a never-ending story. But if you watch the never-ending story as an adult, you realize that it's not the duration that it's talking about, but it's actually the impact that the story has in the lives of people and how they come into contact with the story. It envelops them because it's a comprehensive story and it becomes their story as they become part of its story. And as you watch the movie, you realize that you're becoming part of the story as well because you're hearing about it and maybe you're passing on that story to other people. So you might ask yourself, well, what does a never-ending story have to do with what is the master doing and how do we go about following him and joining in? And the answer to that is, is that even though the never-ending story is a fictional story, there really is a never-ending story that is being told and that is being written even as we speak, as I speak and as we sit here this morning. And that's the story that God has been telling ever since the beginning. And it's a never-ending story in duration because it really does never come to an end. But it's also a never-ending story in that it is the comprehensive story of reality that we are all characters in that it envelops us and we're part of the story and that the story actually becomes our story when we recognize 
what the story is. We, we recognize who's telling the story and how we fit in and we respond to the story appropriately. Because the story lives in us and it, we pass it on and we pass it on to others who pass it on to others who pass it on to others. And the story ultimately never ends. But it may not necessarily feel like we're in the midst of a never-ending story. And that's because when we read the Bible, we read about things that happened a long time ago, and we read about things that are going to happen at some point in the future, but we may not necessarily feel like anything is happening now, as as if God has some sort of writer's block and he's not doing anything, and that we're not really part of the story, that we're just sort of sitting in the intermission, reading about what happened in the past, wondering what's going to happen in the future, but really not really engaged in the story or that there's not really much of a story being told in our lives. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two aspects of the story that God has always been engaged in, that he will be engaged in in the future, and that he's engaged in doing right now, and we'll see how we can participate and be part of that story and join in in following the master in what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would bless your word and bless our time together and that Jesus would be glorified and that you would, by your spirit, change us to be a little bit more like him. And it's his his name I pray. Amen. All right, so the very first thing that God is doing, and not necessarily first thing, I guess, in order or necessarily of importance, but, but definitely close to importance, is that God is and always has been adding characters in the story to his kingdom. Now, there are lots of parts in the Bible between the beginning and the end that are sometimes hard to understand that aren't necessarily all that clear and that theologians and Bible scholars have different opinions on. But everyone agrees that the big, broad narrative of the story, sometimes called the theodrama or just the big story of the Bible, is that God has created human beings and he has created them to be in a relationship with him. But unfortunately, human beings have severed that relationship by their attitudes and their actions. The very first couple, the very first pair of human beings that God makes decide to become cosmic rebels and they alienate themselves and then by way of association and then by way of practice, we are alienated also from God in the things that we do where we stand apart, become our own rule, become autonomous and think that we can do things and we don't need to follow and obey what God has revealed to us. And in doing that, we have become separated from God. And from the beginning of the story, right after that happens, all the way through into the end of the story, God is telling this grand narrative of how he is trying to reconcile and bring back these characters in the great story to be part of the kingdom that he's establishing. And he begins with Abraham in a formal way, and he starts this covenant community, and he invites the people of Israel into a relationship where they can tell people about who God is. And then he promises, though, that one day someone is going to come, there's going to be a rescuer, the ultimate savior who will fulfill and succeed where Adam and Eve failed and be a representative before God and invite people into this grand community that he's going to establish. It will ultimately be successful. And by the time you get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, there is this grand kingdom with a new heaven and a new earth. And all tears are wiped away and Jesus is on the throne. But there's one really big problem with the story. Although that's the good news, the bad news is is that we're all cosmic rebels and of course therefore we're alienated and we're not able to enter into the kingdom. 
And so the heart of the gospel story is the salvation message that says that Jesus enters into the world, declares himself the king, but the king is crucified. And in being crucified and rising again from the dead, he takes care of our sin problem, our, our rebellion problem, by taking it upon himself and exchanging that with his righteousness for our sake. And when we recognize who he is and pledge our allegiance to him as the king of the kingdom, then we're welcomed into his family. And we have a new life. We're part of the new story that God is telling, not only in a broad sense, but on our own individual level. God works out a new story in our lives. And God has been doing that from the beginning. He is going to do that at the end. But he has been doing that throughout the church age as well. We read, of course, in the Gospels that Jesus comes into the world and he calls people and people join him. But you know that Jesus is still doing that now. In the book of Acts, what we find is after Jesus has given his disciples the great commission to go into all the world and to preach the good news and to make disciples of all people and to teach them everything that he commanded and to be baptized, they go about doing this. And the early church gossips the gospel all around the Mediterranean world. They share what Jesus has done. And in sharing what Jesus has done, God does his part. And throughout the book of Acts, over and over again, whether it's in chapter 2, or it's in chapter 5, or it's in chapter 6, or in other places, you read phrases like this. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. God added to the number of the church those who heard the news of the good news, those who heard the story about Jesus, because there were people who were telling the story. Now, sometimes we might say, yes, God did that then. And of course, he worked then. And we see God's hand back then. But is God really doing that now? And the answer to that question is absolutely, yes, he's doing that. And God's fingerprints are all over the salvation of all kinds of people who have great and wonderful stories about how God has called them into the kingdom. A number of years ago, a friend of mine was involved, two friends of mine actually, were involved in the story of someone who came to know God in a way that only God could orchestrate. This gentleman was hitchhiking, running away from his family problems. He had children. His marriage was, was strained, and he couldn't take it anymore, so he decided that he was just going to hit the road, and he decided to hitchhike from where I live in Sault Ste. Marie, or where my parents live, where I grew up, in northern Ontario, and he was going to head out west where he had relatives, and he was just going to start everything anew. So he's leaving everything behind. And he stepped onto the highway to hitchhike, and he got picked up by a Baptist pastor. And that Baptist pastor preached at him for the entire time they were in the car together until the gentleman couldn't handle it anymore. And he said, look, I've had enough. Just stop and let me out here on the side of the road. I don't even care where we are. I don't want to hear any more of this stuff. So that's what he did. He let him out on the side of the road. And where he let him out on the side of the road of, just coincidentally, was out in the middle of nowhere, Gooley River, Ontario, which of all places in the world actually has its own Bible college. It has one professor, Dr. Clock, who started the college years ago. They built, a, they built a chalet-style building. It's about four stories tall. You can see a picture of it on, on the internet if you Google Northland Bible College, Gooley River, Ontario. And they had about six to ten students there every year. 
And these folks would come through, and it was like, uh, if you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer and Labrie, they would do schoolwork in the morning, and they would shovel manure in the afternoon. And they would harvest the garden, they would milk the cows. And so here this guy gets out on the side of the road, and he sees this big sign in the middle of the field that says, you must be born again. And he thinks, oh, I've had enough of this, but I sure do want to eat. And so he walks up to the chalet, and, he, and, and as he's walking up the driveway, he sees a student there, a friend of mine named Joe, and Joe says, hey, how you doing? And he says, well, I'm hitchhiking, I'm across Canada, and I'm, they get into the nuts and bolts of the nitty-gritty of his story, and Joe starts to tell him, you know, I think that, that, that it's great that you stopped here, because I think that Jesus is the answer to your problems. He says, I don't want to hear about Jesus. I just heard about Jesus for like the last two hours of hitchhiking with this Baptist pastor. And Joe said, oh, that's okay. That's fine. We're still happy to give you a meal. So they bring him in. All the other students, like all five or six, come and they sit down at the table. They start eating. They introduce this guy. And of course, they think it's their opportunity to share the gospel with him. He doesn't want to hear any of it. Finally, when they're all done, he says, I'm out of here. My friend Tim walks him down to the, to the, to the highway, about maybe a quarter of a mile away. And on the way, he's encouraging him in the things of the Lord. He's sensitive to the fact that this guy doesn't want to hear it anymore, but he thinks this is his last opportunity, so he just encourages him in the things of the Lord. The guy says, look, fine, fine, fine. You got your religion. I got mine. I heard what you had to say, but that's enough. I'm on my way. So he goes out, he hitchhikes, and he gets in a car with someone, and this one's not a Baptist pastor. This one's not preaching to him at all. In fact, there's actually silence in the car for most of the drive, and it's time for this guy to think about everything that he's heard, and he starts to feel convicted that maybe what he's heard has some truth to it. He really is running away from his problems. He really has committed sins in the past, and he starts to really feel like maybe there was something to what these guys started, were telling him, and the fact that he ran into a Baptist preacher, and then then he ended up outside of Bible college in the middle of nowhere. Finally, they come to this, uh, this diner and they, split, they, they part ways, the hitchhiker and the driver. And the diner goes in and he decides, I'm going to have a, a cup of coffee and I'm going to have a piece of pie and then sort of settle down for the night somewhere. So he finishes his cup of coffee, he finishes his piece of pie, he goes to pull out a napkin and out of the napkin falls a Bible track. And he reads that Bible track and it tells him how he's a sinner and that he needs to get saved. And it's the same message he's heard from Joe and Tim and the Baptist preacher. And he's starting to feel convicted about this. And now he's really wondering, what is there to this message? And finally he says, but I'm not ready yet. I'll think about it a little bit more. But he decides that he needs to make one stop before he goes home, which, which goes out into the highway, which of course is to the bathroom. He goes in, he sits down, he does his business. He reaches over for the toilet paper, pulls the toilet paper down, And wouldn't you know it, a Bible track falls out. (laughs) True story, true story. I know the people involved. And right there, he said, God, if you are really after me this hard, then I'm yours. And he gave his life to Christ. And I know that the story is true because he went back out on the highway, but this time he crossed to the other side. He hitchhiked back to the Bible college. And he went in and he told them that he had become a Christian and that he was heading back to his family and he was going to try and make things right. God is still inviting people into the kingdom. There are miraculous ways that it happens in the Bible. And we say, why doesn't that happen today? Most assuredly, it happens today. We just don't always hear about it. But there are stories like this where God uses circumstances to bring about an invitation and a reception of people and of characters in the broad story into his kingdom. Tony Campolo is a a, a sociologist, an evangelical Christian sociologist, cares deeply about social issues, who was invited to go and speak to a sort of a, a, a robust and renowned group of intellectual thinkers. Judges, lawyers, clerks, et cetera. 
And he said, you know, if I'm going to go preach to these people, I want to make sure that they don't associate me in their minds with those nutty people that you see holding signs up in the end zone at football games and stuff. Because throughout the 1980s, there was a guy who was immortalized in a song called Banner Man because he always had a banner at every major sporting event, and it had a Bible verse on it. Big yellow sign. Anybody ever see this guy, you know, throughout the 80s, right? Yeah, he'd hold it up. So if someone kick a field goal and the camera would be on the end zone, he'd raise a sign, John 3.16. And he always had the same goofy uh, rainbow wig on his head. Big afro. Same guy. He got into all the sporting events. I had no idea how he did it. And, and, and he said, I got to make sure that when I talk about Jesus, they don't think I'm talking about that guy. So Tony gets up and he says, look, I want you to know that what I'm going to tell you about today is very intellectually rigorous. It's really grounded, and you don't have to kiss your brains goodbye to become a Christian. And don't think about me like that guy in the end zone who holds up the John 1.12 sign. So he goes, and he's very satisfied with himself after he preaches his message to them, thinks he's done a great job, comes down, and now it's a social time, and Tony's standing at the buffet, and this judge comes up to him and says, hey, i got to share something with you. That was a great presentation, but i got to let you know, you know, Last year, I was watching the Super Bowl, and someone kicked a field goal, and wouldn't you know it, the camera focused on the end zone, and a guy lifted up a sign, and it said, John 1, 12 on it. And I thought to myself, why does that sound so familiar? So, at halftime, I went, and I got the old family Bible out, and I looked up John 1, 12, and I read this verse, and it said, to them who believed, he gave, he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believed on his name. And I remembered that that was the verse that my mother always shared with us. That was the verse that my mother read with us, and she had told us that, I, that we needed to be saved, that we needed to know Jesus, that we needed to become part of God's family. And anyway, Tony, to make a long story short, at halftime last year at the Super Bowl, I gave my life to Christ. Because a guy in the end zone held up a John 1.12 sign. F.B. Meyer was, a, was a, uh, a well-known preacher in the 1800s, a good co contemporary of, of D.L. Moody. And he was on a ship heading back across the Atlantic. And when the captain of the ship, this just tells you the, sort of the, how the times have changed, when the captain of the ship heard that, that F.B. Meyer was on board, the pastor and the author was on board, he asked him if he would address the first-class passengers. And could you imagine? Robert Bishop is on board. Robert, will you please address all the first-class passengers on the Carnival Cruise Line? <laughs> That would never happen. Nothing against Robert, right? But just would never happen, right? But here, F.B. Meyer, he, he, he says, okay, I will. And I'm going to talk about answered prayer. So F.B. Meyer gets up. He tells all these stories about how God has answered various prayers. And, and uh, there's a skeptic in the crowd. And the skeptic, after he leaves, is with a friend. And, he, and his friend says to this, this agnostic skeptic, what did you think about that? He says, I don't believe anything that babbler said. None of that stuff is true. But I'm interested in listening to what he has to say because these are fascinating stories. Well, then the captain asked if F.B. Meyer would share the, a similar message with the second class people because they just didn't mix. And so F.B. Meyer said, sure. So when the skeptic heard that another series of stories was going to come about, he decided that he would go and listen. On the way, he grabs two oranges and he's going to eat them. But as he's walking, he sees an elderly lady who is sitting with her back against the, a wall and the back against a chair. Her eyes are closed. She's clearly asleep and she has her hands like this. And so he thinks it would be funny to put these two oranges in her hand. And so as she wakes up, she has these two oranges in her hand. So that's what he does, thinking he's very smart. He walks on. He goes and listens to F.B. Meyer, thinks answered prayer is just baloney. On the way back, this is a true story, multiple attestations of this. He sees the lady sitting there, and she's eating her orange. 
And he looks at her and says, my, you really seem to be enjoying that orange. And she said, oh, I am. My heavenly father is so good. No, my father is so good to me. And he said, father, you're, you can't have a father. You're way too old to have a father. You must be long since dead. And she said, oh, not my earthly father, my heavenly father. And he said, you're telling me that you think your heavenly father gave you those oranges? Right, he knows where they came from, right? She says, oh, I do. He says, explain that to me. She said, you know, I've been sick for several days. I haven't been able really to go anywhere. I've just been sitting here for the most part on the side of the ship watching the, the water go by. And I've just been thinking, oh, all I ever want to eat right now is just an orange. And so I've been praying to the Lord, Lord, please provide me with just an orange. And I must have fallen asleep. And then when I woke up, I found that he provided me not just with one, but he provided me with two. <laughs> he lost his skepticism and he eventually came to Christ, all right? God is still adding people. God is still doing miraculous things. The providence of God is still taking place in the world. And so how do we get in on this? If this is what the master's doing, how do we follow? Well, we share the story that he's given us. We tell the story. We don't save anybody. I had a gentleman come from Nashville, Tennessee. He flew out on Thursday of this week to talk to me because he says his faith is faltering. And he doesn't want to lose his faith, but he's not sure if he can continue to believe. So he said, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, oh, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk to you because, you know, this is kind of something I'm interested in, something I write about. And I said, uh, when would you like to set up a Zoom call or a phone? He's like, oh, just tell me uh, when you're available. I'll fly out. <laughs> I said, uh, where? He's like, from Nashville. I felt so much pressure that I had to say the right thing, right? But then I realized it's not up to me to save anybody. It's not up to me to build anyone's faith, but this is God's job. But what he has called us to do is to be faithful in telling the story. And you might say, look, I'm not very good at telling the story. I'm getting kind of tongue-tied. I'm not very articulate. And, and I'm just a baby Christian, and maybe I don't really know how to explain it very well. Well we're going to completely undermine that excuse right now. One of the gentlemen who was in that story that I told you, who walked the hitchhiker down to the highway, his name was Tim. And Tim came from a background that was quite religious in ritual and in practice, but nothing very deep. His family never knew anything about the word of God, never had heard the gospel, nothing like that. But they were regular church attenders on Easter and Christmas. And when Tim came to know the Lord and he got radically saved, he had a major change in his life, he went back and he preached to his mother and just rammed his Bible down her neck and just alienated her like you can't believe. But over time, she saw the change in his life and he learned to love her. And when she got sick, she came to him and said, I really want to know who this Jesus is that you talk about. And he led his mom to the Lord. And for the last months of his mom's life, she was in the hospital, a baby Christian. And people would come to her and they'd come to console her and they would come to encourage her and they would leave and they'd say, Barbara Jean, we came to encourage you and you ended up encouraging us and we came to talk to you about the wonders of God and now you're telling us about the greatness of God. God is really using you, Barbara Jean. And he'd say, she'd say, yeah, you're right, I can't deny it. God is using me. I've seen him use me. But you know, I've been reading my Bible and you know what I read? That Jesus used the spit and he used clay to heal a blind man's eyes. And he used a jackass to talk to his prophet. And if Jesus can use a jackass and he can use spit and clay, I guess he can use me. And you know, she's right. God can use her and he can use me and he can use you because he doesn't care how 
much ability you have. He cares about your availability. If we're willing to say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I don't know all the answers and I don't have all of, all of my theology down and I don't know how to respond to everything, but I can tell people Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He is willing to use us. In Paul, in Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, if you are willing to cleanse yourself of sort of these sinful practices that we engage in and keep short accounts with God, that we will be vessels of honor, fit for the master's use, that he will be willing to use us to tell the story that he is writing, that he has invited us into, that has become part of ours, so that it can become part of other people's and they can become members of his kingdom. And you might say, but I can't even do what Barbara Jean did. Well, you can do what Frank did. Francis Dixon was a Baptist pastor at, a ba at the Lansdowne Baptist Church in England. And after a time of testimony, he heard two young men in his congregation stand up and tell almost the exact same testimony, that they came to know the Lord because in, they were in Sydney, Australia on George Street, and an elderly old man came up to them and said, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? Would you be in heaven with the Lord or would you be in hell? It bothered them so much that when they came back to England, they had to seek out an answer, and both of them separately, they did not know each other, they had never met, came to know the Lord, but their, their story traces back to this man on George Street in Australia. Francis Dixon, the pastor who hears this story, is going on a preaching tour of Australia within a month, and he says, I'm going to see if I can track down this gentleman. At the first place that, Frank, uh, that, that Francis Dixon preaches at is in Perth, Australia. And he stands up and he starts to tell the story of the two men in his congregation when his host, who he had just met not long before, sitting in the front row, stands up and said, I came to know the Lord from the old man on George Street who asked me if I knew where I would spend eternity. In Adelaide, at the next, me at the next message where he preached, Another man came up afterwards and said, I came to know the Lord because of this man. In all, 10 people, he discovered, had come to know the Lord because of this man on, uh, on George Street. Some of whom had gone into full-time ministry and were missionaries in other parts of the world. And so while he was in Australia, when he finally got to Sydney, through his contacts, he said, has any of you ever heard of the man on George Street? And one of them said, oh yeah, we all know him well. His name's Frank. His name's Frank Jenner. And Frank goes out every day, and he asks 10 people, do you know where you will spend eternity? And he is so nervous and uncomfortable in doing that, he has to pray before he encounters everyone, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then he goes out and he asks one simple question. Francis Dixon met Frank Jenner and told him the story of the various people that he had met. And Frank broke down and cried, and he said, oh God, Thank you for tolerating me and allowing me to hear that something had come from the questions I had asked. Because in all of the years that he had been doing it, speaking to probably almost 100,000 people, if you were to do the math, he had never once heard about anyone going on for the Lord. And this is 10 people that Francis Dixon discovered just by telling the story. When I tell the story, I half expect someone in the crowd to stand up and say, I got saved because of the guy on George Street. How many more people are out there? 
All because he gave what he could, he did what he could, and he shared the story. God is just looking for vessels of clay that he can fill and that he can work through because he's adding characters to his kingdom. He has been doing it since the beginning. He will do it all the way through to the end. It may not seem like he's doing it now, but trust me, he is. The second thing that God is doing, he has always been doing, and he is doing today, is that he's actively engaged for caring for the characters in the story. Not every character in the story is a character who's now in the kingdom. But everyone, every character in the story is part of the story and someone for whom God cares. We know that Jesus says that he came in the world to seek and to save those which are lost. And he came to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross to take away our sins. But at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he wants us to know that he cares deeply, not just about eternity, but he cares about time. He doesn't care just about the holy things, he cares about the mundane things. He doesn't care just about the spiritual, but he deeply cares about the physical. In in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his home synagogue in Nazareth, when it's time for Jesus to stand up and read the scroll, here's what he says, and here's how he defines his ministry. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and of recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as Jesus goes about his preaching ministry and calling people to repentance and inviting them to come into the kingdom, he's doing good works he is loving and caring for people. When the wealthy and the, and, and the well-known and the religiously respected Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue, comes and says, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Will you please come and heal me? Come and heal her? Jesus says, sure, and he's on his way. And in the middle of going to this urgent, in this urgent event, a woman who is clearly a social pariah, she is on the outskirts of Israel, she is poor, she is broke, she has a condition that has made her unclean, and she has been, set, she has been, she has, it has been such the case that she has been marginalized and alone probably for the last 12 years that she's had this condition. And Jesus stops and talks to her after she has actually probably been touched by many of the men crowding around Jesus, and they're very probably angry with her. And Jairus is maybe sitting there thinking, why are you stopping and talking to her? What about my daughter? What about my daughter? And Jesus, to this woman who's trembling on the ground after he's made her come forward because she's been healed by him, he looks at her and he says, what? Woman? No. He looks at her and he says, daughter. She is his daughter even though she's nobody else's daughter. Jesus cares about the marginalized and the broken. On the way into Jericho, who does he come across? Blind Bartimaeus. Maybe his name might even mean son of filth, and he's physically blind. But he has spiritual sight because he's the only one who uses the phrase son of David. He recognizes that Jesus is the coming Messiah, and he asks him, please give your benefits to me that God has promised because you're 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 the hero of Israel. And the crowd says, literally, shut up. And Jesus says, you guys at the front who are yelling shut up, you go get him and bring him over here. Irony, right? Jesus is great at these things. They bring him over. Bartimaeus becomes a follower of Jesus. Jesus identifies with Bartimaeus. But Jesus is on his way through Jericho. And who does he come across? Zacchaeus. You've got the oppressed, and now you've got the oppressor. And who does, what does Jesus do? Does he yell at Zacchaeus? And does he say, Zacchaeus, you scoundrel, you're not a son of Abraham. You're a terrible person because you're a tax collector, and you're ripping everybody off. No, he looks at him and says, come down. I'm going to go stay with you tonight. I have to eat at your house. 
And everybody grumbles at Jesus because they know that Jesus has identified with him and he's accepted him. And because of that love, Zacchaeus becomes a follower as well. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is going around and caring for the people who are marginalized, the people who are hurt, the people who are broken. And he doesn't just do it, but he actually teaches it. And maybe one of the hardest passages in the entire Gospels, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats. And he says in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of time, the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to separate the nations and divide them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And on the left, he's going to say to the goats, depart from me. I never knew you because I was sick and you didn't help me. Because I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Because I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And they'll say to him, Lord, when did we see you all of those things? And he'll say, when you didn't do it to my brethren, the least of my brethren, you didn't do it to me. And then he'll turn to the right and he'll say to those, uh, the righteous, come into the kingdom prepared by your heavenly father. And, uh, because when I was sick and when I was in jail and when I was all those things, you came to me. And at the end of that passage, Keith Green, the Christian singer who's long since passed away, has a comment and he brings it to a fine point. Does anybody know what he says? The only thing between the sheep and the goats in that passage was what they did and didn't, can, do. Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And Jesus says that if it's all just up here and it never comes out in the shoe leather of our life, then we really have question to believe whether or not we've truly pledged allegiance to him and that we're actually following him and being disciples as opposed to some sort of more shallow term called a believer who has just got some intellectual assent going on. We're not saved by doing good things, but if we are saved, then we should be living out a life that is characterized by good works. And in fact, that's the purpose, it's one of the main purposes of why Jesus saves us. In the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, the great passage where he says that you are not saved by works, that you're saved by faith, he goes on in a couple verses later and then says, and you are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus Unto good works that he has prepared that we should walk in. The end goal, the telos of our salvation is to become a kind of person, to do a kind of work, to live a certain kind of way. The scriptures are inspired not just so that we could know truth, but so that we could become a kind of person that lives a certain way. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says, For all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. In the book of Titus, Titus says at least five different times that the lives of the people who he is overseeing, because Paul is writing to Titus, and Paul is reminding Titus, tell your people that they need to be zealous for good works, that their lives should be characterized by good works, that they should be ready to do every good work. And that's what the early Christians were characterized by. In the book of Acts, when Tabitha is dying, they call Peter and they say, Peter, can you come? Can you really come? Especially for her, because Tabitha is someone who was abounding in deeds of kindness and charity, and then she did them continually. And you know that throughout church history, Christians have followed in this practice. Not perfectly, of course. There are always bad exceptions. There were, there were uh, 11 good disciples. There was, tw- there was one bad right? There are some bad examples throughout Christian history, but the vast majority of Christian history has been overwhelmingly positive, and many, many, many of the benefits that we experience today trace and are rooted back to a Christian worldview 
and the coming of Jesus and the change that he's made in people. If you lived in the first century in the Roman Empire, you would have known that charity almost never existed, that compassion was an absent virtue because life was, was very cheap. Unless you were a citizen and a significant citizen and you got sick and you needed help, very unlikely that anyone would ever care for you. Plato didn't think that someone who got sick and was not a citizen and was not a free man was worth caring for. The ancient world is not a world that's characterized by compassion. It's characterized by the, by, by, by the, uh, the Colosseum. It's characterized by bloodshed. It's characterized by thousands of people cheering on, hundreds of people being torn apart, killed by each other, and eaten by lions. But into that world, Christians came, and following the examples of Christians before them who followed the example of Jesus, changed that world. So much so that the Roman Empire itself took notice. Eusebius, who's a church historian, was writing in the 4th century that there was a plague that took place in the city of Caesarea. He says, everybody of any consequence fled, except the Christians. All day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered food from all parts of the city. A multitude of those who were withered in famine and distributed bread to all of them. These deeds were on everyone's lips and everyone glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone the Christians, were pious and truly reverent to God. Justin, the, uh, sorry, Julian the Apostate, the emperor, decades later, writing about a different event, said the following. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. It's their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretend holiness of their lives that they have done most to increase their sect. I believe that we, the pagans, ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. Christians cared for babies that were left on the sides of the hill to die. Christians started orphanages. Christians started the practice of nursing. The hospital, con the concept of a hospital goes back to the early church. And it has just grown and grown and grown over time. In Britain, the slave trade was abolished, mainly because of the Christian ethic being lived out by Christians. The prison system was humanized. Factories and mines were made better in working conditions. The poor became educated. Why? Because Christian people cared about other characters in the story. Missionaries who are oftentimes just anathemized by anthropologists for going in and sharing the gospel and then ruining cultures, and sometimes missionaries have not always done the best and have not treaded lightly and respected different ways of living. But in some of the negative things that they have done, they've done much more good by sharing the gospel, by carrying medicines, by bringing better seed. They revolutionized Ghana's economy by introducing coffee and cocoa, malaria, leprosy, and uh, smallpox have been eliminated in Thailand thanks to Christian missions. Hundreds, if not thousands, of wells of pure water have been provided by people for people because of missionaries. Schools, uncountable number of schools have been, have been built. Um, forced labor in the Congo was abolished by Christian missionaries. Christian missionaries fought against the opium trade, foot binding, the exposure of baby girls in the country of China. And they fought against widow burning, infanticide, and temple prostitution 
in India. And that's all because they recognized that they were the body of Christ. They were his hands, they were his feet, and they watched and they read about him and how he cared for others. And they saw that when the Apostle Paul was going around and he was killing Christians, when Jesus appeared to him, he said to him, Paul, why do you persecute me? But he wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. But Jesus identified himself with his church. And so Paul, in persecuting the church, was persecuting Jesus. And the early church recognized that they were the representatives of Jesus, and they needed to carry on his work of caring for the characters in the story. And that's gone on and continues to go on today. And it doesn't necessarily go on in Parlesis far away from here. It goes on closer to home. In fact, it's, some things have been birthed right out of our own fellowship. In 1993, our friend, James Chambers, found himself in a jail cell losing his athletic scholarship because of his addiction to alcohol. Someone shared the gospel with James and his life was radically changed. So much so that he said, I need to do something about people who are in the same situation as I am. And he began to think and plan and work out a way that he could start a ministry to help people who were in crisis, people who wrestled with addiction, people who were on the verge of homelessness. And he did it. And in the last 15 years from when it started in 2004 until 2021, over a thousand people have come through the ministry and have heard that Jesus loves them, that he has a plan for their life, that they have a hope in him, that they can have a place to live, food to eat, help with getting a job, a mentor that will help and encourage them, and assistance in overcoming their substance abuse. And earlier this year, Jesus saw fit to call James home. And I have no doubt, as Robert said at his service, that he was met with the same words that are met by the righteous in Matthew chapter 25. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Because when I was in prison, you actually came to me and said, I got a place for you to live. And when I was on drugs and addicted and out of my mind, you came to me and said, I kind of know what that's like. I can help you by introducing you to Jesus. And when I had nothing to eat, you provided me with food and you gave me shelter. Not everybody can do what James has done. I realize that. Not everybody can be a James. But everybody can be a Dan. And you say, Dan who? Dan DuPont. And he has given me permission to share this story with you this morning. When Dan was beginning his teaching career, he was a long-term sub at a school. And every day he would go in and he would take attendance and notice that at the end of his attendance list, there was always one student that was missing for two weeks, never showed up to class. And finally, one day he looked down and looked up and there was a new face in class. And he looked at him and he said, hey, glad you're here. I'm Mr. DuPont. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Dan be happy and smiling after a really long plane flight, standing in a fairly long line waiting to get a rental car. This is just Dan's authentic, genuine, loving, positive personality. And it comes out in this interaction with this guy. He says, glad that you're here. Glad you can make it to class. Did he, re- did he say, oh, surprised to see that you finally showed up or good luck in passing the class so far? No, he didn't say any of those things. He actually reached out, encouraged him, kind words, and loved him. 
and he continued to come back to class. And at the end of the semester, he handed Dan a note. Dan opened it up after he left, and it read something along these lines. Dear Mr. DuPont, thank you for being who you are and doing what you did. It's because of you that I'm here today. Because I had not been at school for those first two weeks because I was no longer planning on coming to school. And I only came to school that day and came to your class because I was coming to clean out my locker. Because I didn't want my mom to have to come and clean out my locker. Because when I went home that day after school, I was going to end my life. I had it all planned out. I even had the gun. But your kindness, your words of encouragement, stopped that from happening. And I made it through the class and I'm here today. I was talking with Dan about this last night and he said, yeah, and we're still friends on Facebook and he's gone on to live a productive life. You may not be able to start a ministry, but you can be kind. You can say an encouraging word. You can say something positive. And in doing so, you line up with what Jesus is doing in the world today and you continue to take your part as a character in the story. We began this morning by asking, you know, what does it mean to follow the master and what's he doing? Well, the answer is uh, what, what he's doing. He's bringing people into his kingdom and he's caring for people who are in the world. And he wants us to do the same. And so how do we do that? Simply by being available and speaking when we have the opportunity and doing when we have the opportunity and leaving the results up to God who is continually writing a story that he has a vested interest in having a happy ending. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you have not left us, that we're not in the middle of a story where you've taken a break, you don't have writer's block, we're not in the middle of an intermission, but that you are active in the world this day. Thank you that you invite us to be part of the story that you're telling by sharing the good news of Jesus and by loving other people who we come across in his name. Would you help us to do that today, leaving the results up to you, and would you be kind enough to let us see what some of those results are down the road? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. to join the song sung long before our lives to raise our